All right, greetings, Lango Getters. Welcome to episode two of LangoPod, which we're calling Conventional Wisdom, Why Are Phonetic Alphabets? I'm Lisa. I'm Tyler. And I'm Peter. Uh, welcome to the podcast. So the question today is, why are phonetic alphabets? So we should start off by saying that the IPA is not just a type of beer. IPA stands for both International Phonetic Alphabet and International Phonetic Association. When we talk about IPA, uh, we're usually talking about the alphabet. So in the late 1800s, um, some scholars got together and kind of agreed upon some symbols to use that would represent certain sounds or what the sound might be in that language. So maybe, for example, an S is slightly different in one language than the other, but they're going to use the symbol S because a variety of reasons we'll discuss in this podcast. So one of the advantages of um, having a conventional alphabet, something that everybody can kind of agree upon and know about, is that it allows the flexibility to adopt symbols to a situation while maintaining the advantage of clear description of sounds. So when you're explaining things, particularly before recording, how can I know what your language sounds like if you don't have ah. these kind of sounds to tell me when you write to me about them? You mean before the technology existed to make recordings? Yes, before the technology uh -huh. of recordings, this was a, a great invention, and it's still a great invention today. Now, this podcast is called Conventional Wisdom because the IPA is one convention, meaning you could, you could invent all of your own symbols, and if you defined them, that would be your convention. We use this convention because we know about it. So I know about it, linguists in other countries know about it. And specifically, it's just symbols used by linguists to make it easier to explicitly discuss sounds through writing, right? Without sending you a recording, I can tell you what the sound is like. IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, is one convention. There are other conventions. Another famous one is the American Phonetic Alphabet, which was formulated um, more for the purposes of Native American and First Nations languages. So when you get to a language like Clallam, spoken in the Pacific Northwest, it'll have a, a distinction between a sound like atla and asla. Well, we need a way to talk about this. So APA it is. For our purposes, we're just gonna stick with IPA, but if you are studying language, whatever convention you like is gonna be helpful for you for learning sounds. So why is it useful for language learning? Because languages have different sounds and distinctions. The IPA scaffolds understanding of new sounds and sound systems. That is, that if you understand sounds, it will be easier for you to understand a sound system that's new to you. Now, we have to go back and discuss a small thing from our last podcast, which is a reminder that letters do not equal sounds, right? So I'd like you to recall the idea of the phoneme that we introduced in the last podcast. So a phoneme is a unit of sound, which is a mental target, the sound that is represented in the speaker's mind. So if you missed the last podcast, you might not know that, for example, the sound P in English has different realizations. That is, its acoustic properties are different depending on where it is in the word. But you, as the listener and the speaker, know that all three situations that we have here on the slide represent P. For those listening that are not um, looking at our slide, the words are pin, spin, and knit. 
In pin, the P is aspirated with a small puff of air. In spin, the P is unaspirated. It's just a regular P, which we'll discuss what that means in a second. And in nip, it's unreleased. Now, I said nip there so you could hear it on the podcast. But when people are normally talking, they say nip. If you're looking at the podcast, you can see my lips close. Nip. It is unreleased. So acoustically, P is three different things, yet in your mind, you perceive it as one thing. We call that one thing you perceive, the phoneme. So, all right, so now we're going to look at the IPA vowel chart. Yeah. When we look at the vowel chart, we're looking at a series of features bundled together, right? So the chart reflects the position of vowels in a left-facing mouth. In linguistics, when you look at um, vowel charts or many things, such as many IPA charts be represented this way, they're essentially looking at a mouth facing left. So if you looked at the side of somebody, the right side would be the back of their head and the left side would be the front of their head. Right? True for the consonant chart too. Forward it's the is, same, it's the same for vowels and consonants. Typically, consonants will be arranged by place from lips to glottis. So on the one you can see here, if you're not watching, I'm going to describe it to you. We have a vowel chart here, and the vowels are arranged in front and back, front being left and back being right. And they are arranged in high and low. And it isn't exactly indicated here with a symbol, but it is indicated by position, whether they are round or not. If you're looking at the IPA chart, whatever vowel is on the left of the line is unrounded, and whatever vowel is on the right of the round line is rounded. That if means you're watching, a rounded vowel means that your lips will be rounded while you're pronouncing it. That's right. It, it has to do with the shape of lips while the vowel is being pronounced. And if you're watching, I will show you right quick the difference between a rounded and unrounded vowel with the words C and Sue. C, unrounded. Sue, rounded. And if you're listening and not watching, make the sounds yourself and test it, and you will see, you can look in a mirror, one is rounded, one is not. Okay, so we want to talk a little bit about these features. And when we look at the features, we need to remember that they are, each symbol is a bundle of features. So if you're looking at a, um, the vowel E, spelled I in English, this is going to be at the top left of your vowel chart. If we wanted to put this in features, we would see that it is plus front, minus back, plus high, minus low, and minus round. Maybe wait. we should explain what is front. Or yeah, wait. Now, now you should be reaching for your wallet, right? <laughs> because I just said plus and minus. I didn't tell you what it is, and I didn't even really tell you what front is other than left, right? But this is how linguists do it. We put it into features. When we talk about features, we treat them typically as binary features, meaning it's a yes or a no. It's a presence or an absence. The light is on or off. Sometimes people call this the flippy switchy thing. And because of that reason, because the light's either 100% on or 100% off. What we find in phonetics is that sometimes things that we treat as binary are actually more gradient but it's very useful for communication between linguists to treat it as a binary, and in many languages, it does act that way. So again, when we're looking at our chart on the top left, whatever is top is going to be plus high. Right? It's not just plus high, 
it's plus high and minus low. That's the way binary works together. When we talk about a sound that's made in the front of the mouth, it has also to do with tongue position, but it might be easier to just think about the sound existing in that point in your mouth. So a high vowel is at the top of your mouth and a front vowel is at the front of your mouth. Now on right, the next we should, slide- Maybe we'll we should we break it down. Talk. So high refers to position of the jaw. Your jaw can be high or low. And front is talking about what your tongue is doing. Is your tongue pointing forward or is it pulled back? That's right. So the jaw height correlates to the height of the vowel. And the tongue frontness or backness correlates to the frontness or backness of the vowel. And when we look at all these things as features together, we can start describing them. And we've, we've, if you're looking at the screen, on the next slide, we've got two written for you. And then we've got a challenge. Can you figure out how binary features work? Right? So it's really useful for linguists to use binary features again, because if I send you a series of symbols, perhaps um, I am working with a community of a language which has not um, been attested, say, on the internet yet. And you want to know about the sounds and I can't send you a recording. One of the things I might do is describe the sound system and I'll define each vowel in binary features exactly as I have here. So when we look at E, spelled I in English, we can list the features as plus front, minus back, plus high, minus low, and minus round. Right? We have to discuss frontness and backness. Being minus front does not make you plus back. Those are separate features. And that's how we get, it. when we were back on the chart, you notice there was three columns and three rows. And that's how we get essentially nine positions. It's more than nine, but that's how you get multiple rows and multiple columns with only binary features, right? You made a good point too, that it's, it's also on a gradient. And a lot of people's vowel spaces, actual vowel spaces can look very different from this, right? It can be more contracted or yeah, certain vowels can be in different positions. And some vowels seem to overlap in their vowel space. We, we were talking about vowel space and we had it on the slide, but we didn't really define it so much for those that aren't uh, watching. Basically, if a vowel is at the, we'll call this whole area a vowel space, and at the top left, let's say that's your E vowel, it's occupying that space. And if you were to record someone and plot on a graph using your F1 and F2, which is a phonetic thing, we can email me if you want to know more about that. You can plot it and see that the vowel won't be in the same place every time. In fact, if I recorded myself saying a vowel, the same vowel, 500 times, it would be slightly different 500 times. And so it's like a grouping for darts or archery. But what is interesting is that once in a while, the vowel spaces overlap. This can be something that's conditioned, or it can be something we're going to discuss a little later when we talk about how many vowels there are in English. Mm -hmm. Sometimes two vowels become one vowel. Yes. Right. Okay, so our first vowel is easy enough. That's E. That's the one we've been talking about. The next one is another important vowel. It's OO, spelled with a U in English. And it has two salient differences from E. One is that it's minus front and plus back, right? and that it's plus round, while E is minus round. It we, turns out that most front vowels in most languages in the world are minus round. They are unrounded. Whereas... 
I was going to suggest, let's take a, um, a second to just contrast these two sounds. You, you, and feel what the tongue is doing as we, as we go back and forth. We. We. Yeah, you can feel the tongue move in between the two. That's a perfect example. Hard to see, but if you, if you feel what you're doing. Test it for yourself at home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I recommend it. That's a key thing to learning languages too, is your ability to make sounds and repeat them. So, and it's definitely a way to get some interesting looks in the library, in the linguistics section. <laughs> Any section of the library. <laughs> That's just where I'd be. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the trend is that typically back vowels are round and front vowels are unrounded. This is the unmarked situation. Markedness is a term linguistics uses and maybe some other sciences. And maybe linguists like it today or don't like it today, but it's a useful notion for learning languages. Um, if a language only has one set of back vowels, they will be rounded. But if it has two, then you might get an unrounded one. But you don't get a language that has, say, unrounded back vowels phonemically, but no phonemic rounded vowels. So the base layer is always implied by the second one. Whatever is marked implies the unmarked, oftentimes in linguistic um, patterns when we use the term markedness. So what you see is that in English, we really typically have only rounded back vowels and unrounded front vowels. That's not true for every language. So we'll discuss some of those examples in a second. For now, I wanted to see if you're listening at home or wherever you are, can you think of how to describe vowels like O? So we have an O vowel there first. And if you had to describe it, I would want you to describe it in binary features. So when Are you we talking talk about, about a pure vowel or a, comb a sequence of vowels there? Are you talking about O or O? O. O. Tyler's pointing out that in English, when we have O at the end of a word or in a stressed syllable, um, it's typically really kind of two things put together. You might think of it as an O-W, although that's not how English spells things, so right. not uh, based we, on English in, spelling. In the word to know, it is spelled that way. Occasionally it is. <laughs> Occasionally they get it right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you were to compare this, for example, if, if you know a little about Spanish, you might know the second person singular pronoun, tu. If you were to compare that with the English number, tu, tu. you could hear the difference. Tu, tu. And if you, I got real close to the camera. So if you're watching, you can look at my lips and see um, the exaggerated rounding. Mm. If it's maybe a little bit longer. So we're, right now we're just talking about pure vowels. Um, although in English we tend to do things like O becomes O. Mm -hmm. As in, we don't say, where did you go? We don't say lango, we say lango. Right? Yeah, so it's also- Lango getters. It's more, produced more front in the mouth push forward for the American. Or do? Oh. <laughs> well, just talking about front or back is O plus front or minus front. Hmm. That's going to be minus front, right? And then if it's minus front, it cannot be plus back. Wait, it cannot be minus back too. Wait. It can be minus can front be and minus mi back, but if it's plus front, it can't be plus back. plus back. In this case, it's minus front 
and it is plus back, right? Something could be minus front and minus back. We'll talk about that later. But just looking at O for right now, O for right now, you can say it's just copying the exact same features we have it with a two above it. You can say, well, for frontness, I would say O is minus front. For backness, I would say it is plus back. For height, we have a different problem. It's minus high. It's not a high vowel. But it's also minus low. It's not a low vowel, right? So now our sequence looks like minus front, plus back, minus high, minus low. When we get to rounding, we would say it is a round vowel, as we've just discussed a bunch of times. Even without the W at the end, like we do in English, it's still a rounded vowel. Okay, the next vowel we're going to look at is ah. And this might be a little trickier, although I've given a clue in the last answer, which is that it's not a front vowel, nor is it a back vowel, right? We would say it's in the middle of front and back. Some people I think will call that central. But in, in our binary features, it's easy enough to say it's minus front and minus back. For height, it is minus high and plus low. And in my dialect, it's unrounded. I think most would be unrounded. So I think that might even be part of the definition of A. But you could imagine a system which has a distinction. When we want to know how many vowels an English uh, language has, one useful thing is to check minimal sets. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk about the idea of a minimal pair right quick. Yeah. It is two words that are different by only one sound. Do you guys know of one middle minimal pair? Well, we could have peer and pair, for instance. Peer, peer and pair. Which there are, there's a pair of related words, actually, peer and pair. <laughs> They're <laughs> a pair of peers? Yeah, that's right. So Tyler gave us a perfect example for vowels. There are two, two words that are different by only one sound. Or so from your same, sorry. An example of consonants might be pet and bet. Or let's take your same starting point, peer and beer. Perfect. Perfect. So you change one sound. So peer and peat are even minimal pairs, but it's less useful, right? Because R and T are so different. We have a big suspicion they're not going to be the same. But when you're trying to find out if something is an allophone, meaning is this just a different phonetic realization of the same mental target mm. or is its own distinct mental target, its own distinct phoneme, what you want to do is start looking at minimal sets with Vowels in English, we have a great uh, variety of minimal sets, though I don't know of any minimal set which covers all the vowels we have. Mm -hmm. We have some sets here that we're proposing, right? And the, the, the sequence I like is consonant, vowel, consonant, where you just change the vowel and see how many unique words you can make. Like For changing the out the picture inside of a frame. That's right. The frame is the same. And the frame in this case is L and K. Recall that sounds are not spelling. Right. So a word like leak and a word like lick are minimal pairs, even though they're spelled very differently because the sounds are L vowel consonant, L vowel K in this case. So leak and lick is a minimal pair. If you are listening, I will tell you our first minimal set um, aloud and it's leak, lick, lake, lack, like, lock, look, luck, Luke. The problem is there's possible vowels which aren't in our minimal set. So we've added a few that are near mm -hmm. minimal pairs. So we've added fleck, 
So between lake and lack, we have fleck now. It's not a real minimal pair with those. It's not a real minimal set because it's part of a bigger word. And the reason we've chosen fleck is because there happens not to be a word lek. If there were, we could use that. But yeah, this, this is, is a, a it, this is the point. We we can also propose nonsense words which could be there <laughs> if which could be there but don't exist in our language for whatever reason. So after lock, we have lock. Generally, linguists are well advised to avoid nonsense words. <laughs> Oh, I don't know about that. I think it's a pretty useful yeah, thing for learning about the sounds of a language. Oh, Plus, it's, you know, very fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, you, you don't want to base all of your knowledge on a language on nonsense words because when you go into the grocery store, you may ask for very well-formed words that mean nothing. It would be gibberish that also, for example, the um, poem by Lewis Carroll, Jabberwocky, yeah. is full of nonsensical sounding words that mm -hmm. they don't mean anything but they just could be english words yeah and, and they have speaker, english grammatical features to them too that's right you know which words a verb and a noun but none of them mean anything in english so this this is an interesting phenomena but that's not necessarily the best way to investigate minimal sets that might be what you do if you are investigating a language where there's no written materials it might be what you do though so in our case we realize that we're missing some vowels from the, our L and K frame. So we've added in a few from other sets. All of them together, all of them together add up to the vowels of English. So our, well, close to the vowels of English. So our next set is with K and T, although spelled with C and T in all of these examples. And that is cot, caught, and coat. That's how I say caught. How do you guys say it? I emerge, so I say both C O T and C A U G H T the same as, as caught. caught. Mm -hmm. and then what I, about you, Tyler? Caught. That's the middle one. Caught. Caught. <laughs> it sounds slightly different to me. It's slightly different. They feel different. Feel different. Almost near merged. Caught. Yeah, I think I. I think for me, it's okay to merge them or not merge them because of where I grew up speaking and then where I moved when I was acquiring my accent. A talk for another day. Lisa will have to really yeah, um, uh, give us the privilege of that. American English. Okay, so the next one we have is bait, bet, and bat. And now we've gotten most of the vowels of English. If you are watching, you can count it up and see how many there is, but we'll look at it again in a second and tell you the total. And you'd also, well, you need to then Note that bet and fleck, those are the, the same vowel. Yes, bet and fleck are the same vowel. So because we didn't have lek as a word, I've shown that bet exists in distinction to a and a. So we have lake and lack and lek, but lek is have bait and bet and showing the same pattern. And they all three have different meanings, thus must be phonemically distinct. The same because we don't have lock and loke. You might have... Loke might be a word for some people, but maybe not for most. So we have cot, caught, and coat. Now for many people, cot and caught are gonna be the same. So that means that, this is what's really interesting. People might have a different phonemic inventory in English than you, but you, if you're a native speaker, odds are you will understand them and they will understand you. So this is where the fuzziness begins, right? Now, there is a particular thing I'd like to draw your attention to, which is there's a vowel which we can't seem to produce a good minimal pair for. And that is the schwa. And so I have 
here, written on the screen in case you're not looking, the Great Schwa Conspiracy. Let's talk briefly so, about the word outlook, why it's two syllables. Outlook? In, in, the, fir in, in the first set. Oh, still discussing the examples. Yeah. Okay. Um, so when we have these outlook. There it's not there. I'd say outlook. Outlook. Oh, right. You see. If you use it as a noun, it's outlook. If you lose it as a verb, it's outlook. <laughs> I, I don't think I've heard that verb. I just verbed it. But it actually shows the thing we're going to show in the Great Swaz Conspiracy. There's this kind of alternation of jabberwocky stuff. Okay, so I think Tyler's point here is that outlook, outlook has a little vowel in there that isn't the same vowel as look. In the word look, right. Between the L and the K is what we're talking about. So just disregard the first syllable. Outlook. Yeah. Outlook. That and look, that vowel in the middle is not captured in any of these other words to my hearing. And what do you think about that vowel, Tyre? That's a high central vowel? High central or mid central, I would say. Look. Outlook. Outlook. High mid. It's pretty maybe? high there. Yeah. Out, mid high, sure. Unrounded? Outlook. Yeah, outlook. Watch outlook. 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 Ah, rounding condition outlooking by Looking around. Outlook. I don't, I don't feel or see any rounding. No, it. If you are watching, you can see the cameras and you'll see whether we're rounding it or not. And from what I saw, we don't round it when it's unstressed. And that one might be a schwa. It might be a kind of a schwa, right? I think it's a different thing. Like in just, you say, I just went to this. You have this kind of high central lax vowel. We're kind of driving towards the point here of the schwa conspiracy still. So there are some vowels which we can't really show they have a minimal pair, right? So in a schwa in English is the beginning sound in a word like about, right? Or the sound in the second syllable in a word like Asia. So you get this little tiny vowel and we have a hard time showing that it exists phonemically in English. It's a very common uh, vowel sound in English. I'd say it's the most yeah. common sound. Yeah, it's hard to, hard to say a sentence without one. Yeah. I, I can't imagine that there's a more common vowel than schwa if you did a corpus study. Maybe someone has done such a study. So our first point is that schwa does not occur by itself in a stressed syllable. This is suspicious. Suspicious. Is that a schwa, schwa in it? Okay, so <laughs> um, in fact, sometimes it seems like it's not a stressed version of other vowels, like it's a non-stressed version of other vowels. So. Before, when I was leading up to this, I used produce, right? That's the verb. The noun, produce. Is it a case that, so we have an alternation there, in case you didn't catch it, between produce and produce. And the part we're interested in is the first syllable where it's pro versus pra. Produce versus produce. And the pra there, that's a schwa. Now this happens again with content and content. This happens again and again with a series of words that alternate stress this way. And it, one analysis could be is that when, for example, the O in produce is unstressed, that it alternates with schwa and that schwa is just a um, allophone, an alternate version of the same mental target for O. 
However, on the other side, it it could be that it's its own thing because we don't really see O alternating schwa with every environment. And it's only one analysis that produce and produce are the same word with two different inflections. Another analysis could be that they're just two separate words that historically come from a word that was inflected but isn't productive in anymore in English. Some evidence for this view might be that Tyler didn't believe me that outlook could be a verb because I just well, did. I'm not saying it that. couldn't. I just don't think it <laughs> is yet. Not yet. You just outlooked it. Well, oh, there. <laughs> no, that can't work because that, that, <laughs> no. that's blocked by overlook. No, outlook so. should mean like if we're both looking for something and I looked better than you, I outlooked you. Yeah, right. I looked, yeah. But, so there is perfect. It's perfectly good word. Yeah, I take it back. Well, Objection withdrawn. Outlook it. We have just trademarked it, so if you're going to go use it as a verb now, you need to credit Lango from here on out. TM. Outlook TM. Okay, so let's go back to talk a second about English vowels. And the first thing we have on this slide, if you can't see it, is a, a simplified English vowel chart. And you will see there's quite a few vowels in there. If you are thinking that English has a, E, I, O, U, and sometimes Y, you're going to be disappointed when you look at this chart because there are many more than six vowels in English. We or may, maybe, you'll be, maybe you'll be overjoyed to learn there are so many. I hope so. Should we read through all the sounds? Let's look at a couple of these sounds. And we'll start again with our favorite vowel, E, in the top left corner, where you can see it's right next to front and high. So maybe we should do some examples. Um, I guess I'll do one and do you guys feel confident to come up with examples on the spot? Yes, let's do okay, it. Okay, I'll do one and then Lisa and then Tyler and then back to me. So for the high vowel E, I would use the word ski. Like it. Lisa next. Okay, um, so for the shorter high front vowel I, I would use fin. Or actually, pin. 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 For the sound A, I will choose the word same. Same? Same. Same. All right, so just below that, we have a vowel E, and that is the word in pet, as in when you pet your pet. The vowel, rather. <laughs> yeah, the vowel. Sorry. Low vowel next is Ah, um, and speaking of pet, I'll use Tyler's favorite kind of pet, cat. Cat. Pet cat. Pet cat. Shall we continue in a single motion and go back upward? You choose where you start and I'll follow you. Go to ah at the bottom, which we have in the word father. Father. So I guess it's fitting that I get the next one because I don't have the merger. Okay, so don't go to me for the next one. To compare between father, another word that has that same vowel is bot, short for robot. And the word that has the next vowel, which is different than that, is bought. Like I bought something at the store, the past tense of buy. So bot, bought. For some speakers, like me, those are two distinct vowels. Very nice. All right, going to, oh good, thanks Tyler. O is next. O, like coat. Okay, and then the U that comes next is the one we have in the word hoof. 
as worn by a horse. Hoof, or not worn, but grown. <laughs> okay, so um, there's one vowel we're missing. I don't Look know two. if this looks real good, Woo. but it's carrot there. And so after our hoof vowel, we have a vowel that looks like um, carrot symbol. Two thirds of a triangle. People call it a carrot or a wedge, or it looks like an arrow pointing up with no line in it. Picture a period. Uh, I had a student one time call this vowel the hut vowel because it looks like a hut, and uh is the vowel in hut. I often call it the love vowel because it's just an easy example to think of, and it's the vowel in love. Our last vowel is ooh then. Then we've all, we've got all of them but schwa then and just the gist vowel. So whose turn is it to do the ooh vowel? Is that Tyler? No, it's you. It's me. Okay, I, I jumped the cue then for, for the hut vowel. Okay, so our example of an ooh vowel will be Luke. So lake, Luke, lick, like, Luke. That one, and that gets us a lot of vowels here. Now, depending on how many um, vowels you have in your language, in your version of English, if you're a native speaker of English, if you're a second language speaker of English, um, I'm also interested in what vowels you have. But just looking at what we have here based on the evidence we presented for, say, my English, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, without looking at schwa. So when we talked about the schwa conspiracy a second ago, I made it seem like, well, there's not really good evidence for schwa to be a phoneme. But there's also not good evidence it's not a phoneme. So when we look back at words like about, well, what else is the uh at the beginning of about supposed to be? What is the first syllable to be? If schwa is a reduced version of something in that, what vowel is it reduced to be? Because about has no alternations. You can see this for a lot of words that have schwa, including Tyler's favorite schwa word. Outlook. I thought it was subpoena, the only oh, that verb one. that ends oh, in schwa. Yeah. <laughs> Tyler's mentioned it a few times to us, so. Nice little challenge. So when we, when we consider it, in my opinion, especially if I was learning the language, I would just go ahead and posit that schwa is a phonemic vowel. And that pushes us to a pretty hefty vowel count for English. It's not the most vowels of any language. There are languages with upwards of 20 distinct vowels. Um, but they, this is many, many vowels. And using this, you can probably learn the vowels in most languages because when you start adding vowels to this number of phonemes, usually what you start to get is um, phonemic nasal vowels, vowel length distinctions, distinctive um, diphthongs, and uh, unexpected rounding or unrounded. So you might get a front rounded vowel distinction distinguished from a front unrounded vowel and a back unrounded vowels and etc. So if, if you learn the English phoneme, phonemic inventory of vowels, probably you have a good jumping off point to learn other languages. And I don't know, is there a major world language with more vowels than English? How many vowels does French have? Do you know? About the same number as we've seen. As Just we different see here. stuff, but the same number? Roughly. Um, we should also point out there's ow, oi, and i that aren't included here. Are? Oh, yeah. So we, 
we haven't listed any diphthongs in English, even though we kind of said some of them, meaning like lake isn't lake. I know that might sound the same over the podcast, but if you were to uh, inspect those two over um, prop software, acoustic analysis software, you might see that there's a difference. So there might be phonemic, phonemic diphthongs in English. Now my whole life, my whole linguistic career, I've been saying diphthongs. It's not diphthongs, it's diphthongs. Whatever it is about uh, my phonotactics doesn't like it. I, but it is diphthongs. And what that means to you as the listener is when there's kind of two vowels together that act like one vowel. So Tyler gave us some examples a second ago, like I, such as in kite, right? So you have kite and cot. Kind of seems to me like they're a minimal pair. Is there any word? Yeah, there's, it's, it gets trickier and trickier to explain, but if I was a student of English, I'd probably get really interested in those diphthongs too. So what we've put on the slide here for those watching is some arrows from one vowel to the other. So in the vowel I, for example, you start at the ah at the bottom. Maybe even you have the Texas ah vowel. Mm -hmm. So in Texas, for example, people where wow. I live typically don't say things like kite. They say cot. So the diphthongs have changed to a different vowel. It's not in everybody's English. But let's assume that you have the I sound. This arrow represents what, what the vowel space is doing when you're talking. You start at the ah, or ah, a little in front of that. And then it moves up to I, I. It's I, like a dance the, step from one place to another. If you want to see something maybe a little unsettling, depending on who you are, look at the screen and I'll show my mouth from the side making it and you can see the tongue move. I, I. Lisa thinks that's funny. In case you're uh, listening and not watching, you can't see the laughter, but some find it amusing. Unsettling. <laughs> it is a bit unsettling. Okay, now we've um, used a lot of verbiage on vocals. So now maybe it's a good time to talk about consonants. So obviously that's gonna be the next thing we're talking about. We talk about vowels and now we'll talk about consonants. What is the difference between a vowel and a consonant? Hey, Peter, can you hit the clear button? Oh, is that Peter? Uh, I think so. Either yeah. erase or just, there's a, yeah. There it goes. Okay, so I left some annotation up there for those listening. That would not affect you. Back to what is the difference between a vowel and a consonant. So consonants have more stricture than vowels. Have you heard this word stricture before? Because um, the spell check has not. Right. That's, <laughs> that's somewhat common with good linguistics terms is the spell check won't know what that is. Stricture is similar to constriction, if you think related, about it yeah. that way. And also strict is in there, word family. You can see the same root. For sure. Stringent. Um, so what happens is, is that when you are making a vowel, there's very little blocking or impeding the air out, right? Yeah, all speech, all speech sounds that we're going to talk about involve air coming out of the, the lungs through the mouth. Yes, all the speech sounds, all the phonemic speech sounds in English are pulmonic, egressive. They're coming out of your lungs. There are languages that have sounds that are not like that but we're not gonna discuss those ones today too much. Okay, super fun. The vowels, you will shape what's happening when it comes out with your jaw and your tongue 
and your lips, but you're not really restricting it or impeding it. But consonants do this, right? And they do it in varying degrees from a little bit of rest restriction to a lot. So for example, an L is only a little bit of restriction. Oh, it's still pretty good. But a sh sound is a lot of restriction. Shh, you can even kind of see it. Although you won't be able to tell with Ks and things like that. So when we're talking about consonants, the way they are made becomes very important and where they are made when we want to describe them. The first thing you're supposed to describe when you're describing a consonant is its place, right? Place is again, front to the back of the mouth. If you're looking at our slide, we're about to put up a um, IPA chart. Mm -hmm. And again, it's arranged from bilabial to lips all the way to mm -hmm. glottis. Yeah, front here. of the oral tract at the lips to the left and the back at the right. That's right. So place matters. And we're talking um, right now about just the place of articulation, right? Where it is in the front of the back of the mouth, like, and we use uh, land signs. So we don't say landmarks. We don't say one inch into the mouth. We say at the <laughs> alveolar ridge or it's possible somebody would do that. That's not what we're doing. Okay. Manner. I say here, manner of stricture. Oh, we're going to talk about what the manners are a little bit in a second. But you could have two sounds made at the same place, for example, bilabials. We often do. But they could be made differently. And finally, voicing. And voicing is a big distinction, too. And we talked a little bit about voicing last time, and we'll talk a little bit about it more now when we get into specifics. First, we're going to take uh, an aside to look at place, then an aside to look at manner, and then we'll get to voicing. So on the next slide, we're going to discuss place of articulation. And there's a distinction which might be kind of helpful um, to a language learner or to a phonetician or a phonologist. And that's the difference between active and passive articulators. So we're schematizing things. And under our schema, the active articulator is the tongue, the lower lip, and the glottis, right? Those are the things that move. Passive articulators are things that are moved against. So um, maybe some examples. real quick, maybe we should say what the glottis is. This is probably not commonly known. Oh yeah, I showed, if you're watching, you could see I pointed to it on my throat, but the glottis is like uh, the kind of the closing at the so, end of your vocal tract. If you looked at the lips as the beginning of the closed vocal tract, the glottis is at the end. It's in your throat and we'll show I mean, some uh, diagrams of what it looks like when it's making different sounds. Yeah, it's a pair of membranes that can seal off the airflow. And we do have it in English, though not phonemically, in words like, uh-oh. We have a glottal stop. I mean, that's different from a glottis. Yeah, well, I mean, we have a, we have a, a consonant that's made with the glottis in English. Okay, so back to the passive articulators. So these are the ones that are acted against. And the first one's lower, um, that should be upper lip. <laughs> upper lip. Oh, that can be lower lip too, actually. It could be. We're gonna say it's the upper lip for today because we're gonna just deal with these kinds of sounds. Then teeth and the alveolar ridge. The alveolar ridge is the bump behind your teeth, your top teeth in your mouth. So if you put your tongue or your mouth, if you can put your finger inside your mouth, I give you permission. And washed, but yeah. <laughs> yes, I give you permission if your hands are washed. <laughs> okay, so if you put your finger inside your mouth behind your top teeth, you'll feel that there's a little ridge. It looks about like this if you're looking. 
And that's where a lot of sounds are made, right? The tongue is the active articulator then, and the alveolar ridge is the passive sound. The next one is the palate, and in your mouth, that's behind the alveolar ridge. That's what you might call the roof of your mouth. Then you have the velum, and the velum and the uv the velum is basically the back of your mouth before the uvula starts. If you've seen, um, if you want to imagine what the uvula is, you have seen cartoons where they're screaming and the thing in the back of their mouth is shaking. That's really the uvula. I think maybe they've called it tonsils in cartoons. That's not what it is, I don't think. You want to imagine that's the uvula. That's the little bell you have in the back of your uh, mouth. That's what Chewbacca uses to make sounds. I'm going to move our faces down real quick because uh, Tyler's making these lovely drawings. Oh, yes. We're getting annotations on here. So if you are confused, you should tune in to the um, video version so you can see these lovely annotations and see what the mouth looks like. Okay, so uh, when we are describing the place of a consonant, we usually are describing the passive articulator with, the assumption, with, with an assumption about what the active articulator is going to be. Like, that's what I was implying with the alveolar ridge. So if I tell you that the passive articulator is the velum, you will assume that the active articulator is not the lower lip, right? Because they can't touch. That's as close as I can get. If you're watching the video, you just saw an attempt. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're usually talking about the passive articulator. So if I say, well, it's an alveolar sound, you're assuming I'm talking about the passive articulator, right? Okay, so we need to talk a little bit about manner of articulation because, of course, manner of articulation is kind of what you're doing when you're talking about the active articulator, right? So as a reminder, the difference between vowels and consonants is um, one of a level of stricture. And consonants are subdivided among themselves for level of stricture. In um, theoretical phonology, they call this the sonority hierarchy. That's not, it's not that important for you to know that, but if you're curious, now you can look it up. As a language learner, it's not that important, but you might be curious. So there are two major groups within the sonority hierarchy, two major groups of consonants. And the first is the sonorants, which are higher in sonority. Thus, they are more like vowels, right? So the most sonorous, the most like vowels of all consonants is semi-vowels, also called glides. That shouldn't be surprising. They're semi-vowels. So of course they're close to vowels. A glide is a sound like Y or W. To put it between consonants, that's like aya or awa. Between vowels, rather. Yeah, those are between, sorry, to put them between vowels, the semi-vowel between vowels is awa and aya. Liquids um, are the next most sonorous sound. And in English, we have two. We have L and R. And our Ls and Rs manifest differently a little bit in different places, too, which is kind of interesting, but a story for another day. Anyways, liquids are pretty sonorous. And if you wanted to know why, you could see that they barely impede, um, they barely impede the vocal tract at all. An L, called a lateral in linguistics, is called so because it allows the air completely around one side of the tongue. Right, or both Hospitals. if you're a rare diamond. So the R is a series of things. It's a messy box, what gets counted as an R, right? So 
But one thing that kind of unifies them is that they are central liquids, meaning they are not liquids that just let the air go around the side of the tongue. It's more of a what they are not case. They're liquids, but they're not that type of liquid. Okay, moving on to nasals. When I say nasals, I really mean a stop, right? Something that stops the airflow, but they stop it at the mouth and open the velum and the air comes out the nose. So for example, the difference between a B and an M sound is air coming out the nose. You can test this at home. So when you make a B sound, you can put your finger under your nose, like you see on me, and try to hold the sound. That's as long as I can make a B. It sort of sounds like retching. I'm sorry, but go ahead and try to make a B for yourself at home, and you'll see that's what you can do. When you make an M, you can hold the sound, and you'll feel the, the air on your finger. And you can't see it, but you can feel it. And you can test it for yourself, and you'll know that I'm telling you the truth about nasals, right? You held up a little so, pinwheel, you can see it or something. Yes. Airflow. Next, we need our Lango pinwheels for nasal testing. <laughs> <laughs> I did the pinwheel diagnostic. I'm sure it's a nasal. So, <laughs> so what's fun about nasals is that they're an oral stop, but the nasal is open, and that allows a lot of air to go through, actually, because you can breathe through your nose, of course. Here's and if you ever want to... What's that? It's also worth pointing out what happens when you have a cold and your air passage through the nose is blocked, your M's become pronounced like B's, your N's yes. become D's. So when people say, oh, I get nasally when I have a cold, they're getting close to, the, close to it, but they've got it exactly reversed. When you have a cold, you're nasal. actually less nasal. You don't say, I'm mad. You say, I'm bad, right? Which is no nasals. I just made those M's B's, and that's it. Now it sounds like the nasal accent. So that's a, a common misconception is that when you get a cold, you're more nasal, when in reality, Tyler is exactly correct, you can't make nasals. <laughs> okay, so moving on to obstruents, my personal favorite class of consonants. Everyone must have a favorite. So obstruents, there are three basic types. And obstruents, like the name sounds like something that's going to get in your way. So it, it is, obstructs. it's an obstacle to the air coming out of your mouth. What were you going to say, Tyler? Uh, obstruction is. It's an obstruction, word. right? It's kind of a, maybe a root or a series of phonostemes, obstacle, obstruent, obstruction. No, they share a prefix. What's that? Obstacle, the root is to stand, and an obstruent, an obstruction, it's the building root, but the prefixes are shared. Excellent. Very nice. Thank you. Well, our first series of obstruents are the least constrictive and the most sonorous. So from obstruents are not sonorous. They're not even called sonorants, but the most sonorous of them is fricatives. And a fricative is kind of an easy one to remember and a, um, because it uses friction, but the air keeps going. So an example of a fricative is an S. Aren't the sound at the beginning and the end of the word fricative? <laughs> yes. Fricatives has three S's, three fricatives, and fricative itself begins in F with, ends with it. That's why I move that we name rename the next class of obstruents Afrikitch. <laughs> Maybe Brazilian style pronunciation. I don't know what they call it in Portuguese, but if they were going to say the English version, they might palatalize the T at the end of a word. What happens with an affricate? It sounds a bit like a fricative. The word fricative, the fric part is contained in affricate as well. 
but an affricate is something that starts as a, as a stop and continues as a fricative, right? We'll talk about stops last, but just you can imagine what a stop does. It completely stops all the airflow. Examples of affricates in English are ch, as in acha, right? So it starts off with a, well, you can't hear it. It's a stop, but the second sound is sh. <laughs> so you put those two together, you get ch. The last sound, the least sonorous, the most restriction is a stop, sometimes called plosive. Now a stop totally stops the airflow. You may not have thought that's what's going on when you were speaking, but a lot of the sounds you make are just complete closures of the airflow. So for example, a well, P. The closure is not a sound, we should say. It's the releasing of that closure. That's what we hear. That's what you perceive is the sound. Yeah, you perceive it over the transition, transition properties of the vowels. But you, do, you can still hear a little bit of sound when there's a stop. You hear voicing, for example things like that, but it doesn't tell you what the sound is. The sound, but what tells you what the sound is, is the vowels, but that's kind of a topic for another day. Yeah, on a spectrogram, you'll just see the, the closures. Yeah. yeah, for example, for a velar sound, you're gonna look for a velar pinch, they call it, where those two sounds kind of come together. So depending on what consonants the vowels are touching, you can look at the, con the vowel formants and discover some properties of the consonant. For our purposes, a stop is just something that stops the airflow. So an example is a P. And if you look at the screen, if you're watching, you can see my mouth completely stopped. A pa, a pa, a pa. Um, and how you would know it's a P if you're looking at a spectrogram would be based on the vowel formants, right? So stopping the airflow is the most restriction you can have is completely constricted. When you look at sounds that way, um, it may not seem like it right now, but you can basically, we're missing voicing. You can describe almost every sound in the world using place and manner. Now, when we move on to voicing, we, um, we're talking about, when we say voicing here, we really just mean the way we're doing it in English, as in a test we'll give you in a second between two consonants, but what can go on with the glottis and the larynx is a lot of things actually in a lot of different languages. And so I'm gonna, we have here displayed um, six potential settings and this is taken directly from Wikipedia Commons and there's more than six settings and we're not even gonna discuss all six. It's a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But just to say, it's extremely important to know a couple of them. It will help you learn languages and you can test it when you're learning. One is, and this is the easiest one I would think, is closed. We have that there represented with A. And so this is the sound in the middle of uh-oh. If you have ever spent time in Hawaii and heard Hawaiian language, it's phonemic in Hawaiian language, right? So when you say ukulele, that's not how Hawaiians might say it. They might say it more like ukulele, right? And at the very beginning of that sound is not a U, it's a glottal stop. If it was between vowels, you would hear it, right? So the word for, right? what's that? Hawaii itself. Hawaii. Perfect example. Yeah. It should be Hawaii, right? Hawaii. Instead of Hawaii. Although what's interesting is though, we still preserve some of the vowel length in English, the same as Waikiki. Like who, who knows, some, somebody who was listening at first tried pretty hard and things have happened. 
But yes, we have a few examples of glottal stop in English that's not phonemic in English. It is phonemic in some languages. And that's our first glottal configuration. If you look at the chart, you can see the vocal folds. Now, these are the membranes Tyler was talking about earlier. Again, here at the Adam's apple, if you're a male type of person, middle of the throat, that's the organ we're looking at. We're looking at a cross section. Or where downward. your Adam's apple might be if you're not an Adam's apple holder. So, and at the, on our chart here, we have an arrow there representing what is the front. But what's important to know is what's open and closed. There's two main pieces here we need to know about. One of them is just the vocal folds themselves that open and close at different states. And then the two little, um, the two little pieces at the end of, we have them represented here as triangulate. These are pieces of cartilage called arytenoids. And the arytenoids can be pulled together or left relaxed, even though the vocal cords are open and full, closed. And the amount of opening in the vocal folds can actually create a lot of different possible. Um, yeah, it's a lot of settings, a lot of phonation types. In some languages, if you are going to study Korean, you're probably going to have to learn, if you were an English speaker like me, you're going to have to learn a new glottal setting that's not in your native language, right? But uh, as far as I know, everyone can do closed, right? I think if you can, if you can swim underwater, and open your mouth and not drown, then you can close your glottis, right? Oh, so. Also, if, when we're lifting heavy things, we also close the glottis so that we can we can have an air column in our in the center of our core. That's right. So even when you're not using it for language, it's still it's doing, it's doing, doing stuff. But in the case of language, we've co-opted, perhaps, we have co-opted this piece of um, digestive equipment to carry no. information. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways we do it is by completely shutting out all sound. The second one, and this one is pretty important for us in this conversation, is what we're calling voicing. In phonetics, they might call this modal voice, meaning maybe it's the most typical one and the one that's most common, least marked kind of voicing. So in this one, represented by B, if you're watching, the arytenoids are closed and there's regular vibration of the vocal fold. What you see is the vocal folds aren't closed like my fingers are right here, they're a little bit tiny bit open. If you have, if you're from the country as I am, when you were a child, you may have picked up a piece of grass and blown across it, made that sound. Well, you're voicing the grass essentially. Or if you play little a, tiny vibrations. If you play a wind instrument or a brass instrument, this is what your lips are doing roughly. Excellent. Yeah, that's a good example. I, I never played wood or woodwind, so I had no idea. Brass, I guess. The basic okay. mechanism is this you're doing with the lips. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing I'm a linguist, not a horn player, I guess. <laughs> you, can, you can be both. I'll do my best. I'll try better next time, Tyler. <laughs> okay, so the next one we want to discuss is C, which is a whisper. Um, when you whisper, your vocal folds are shut, but your arytenoids are a little bit open. So it sounds about like this. I, maybe you can hear that or not through the microphone, but I just whispered. And what's interesting for whispering um, in regards to second language learning is that native speakers are really good at understanding what people are saying when they whisper, but there's actually a lot less information, right? You can't have it when your vocal folds are stuck in this same configuration for the whole phrase, you lose aspiration and voicing and distinctions that carry information. If you're a native speaker of a language, 
you have such profound knowledge of the lexicon, you can just fill in and you anticipate and you, right. you're good at forming, instantly forming hypothesis, hypothesis and testing them and seeing which words it could be. But if you're a second language speaker, you don't have that kind of high speed, uh, both lexical knowledge and processing that it might be hard to understand whispering. Same for over the phone and any place where you reduce information. Um, D is a so-called breathy voice. We're not really gonna discuss that very much because it's not a super common feature to, it doesn't happen in English. And it, uh, well, I mean, you can do it. Yeah, you maybe do it. it's not distinctive. Uh, and maybe they do that in Hindi. Tyler, do you study Hindi? Uh, we're talking about those murmured stops. Murmured? They have those, yeah. Was there a breathy phase at Sanskrit? I've heard these kind of rumblings. Supposedly. That's a perhaps thing. Can't really show it. I mean, it, it's it's a language that people use still today. So this variety as well. Um, would you be willing to demonstrate breathy voice for us? Bah would be one. Bah, abha. That's a stop That's... pronounced with breathy voice. Yeah. Well, there you go, Lango getters. <laughs> if you hear breathy voice in the wild, you'll be able to diagnose it. I also and want to. You... Make might hear it for social reasons like um Marilyn Monroe right <laughs> the other what, stuff did she did she do that um she didn't, she didn't produce that kind of stop but she you know, right, like, it's kind of a flirtatious device that, that, that kind of oh I see yeah so nice. you're adding you're releasing pure air into your speech sounds I am gonna start doing it all the time I had no idea it was so potent <laughs> I'm doing breathy breaths right now. Okay, so the last two we're looking at is E and F. And E is voiceless. What you're just saying when you're saying an S, for example, is E. And F is breathing. Of course, you must have those things open to breathe. So that is a crash course in glottal configuration. It can get a lot more fun than this. It goes from head scratchers to hair pullers. So um, many of the languages that are offered at Lango, this won't be a major thing, but it is something in some major world languages that you should know about. And if you're interested in all the languages of the world at once, as I am, then this is something you should know about because it plays out very interestingly across the world's languages. Okay, now I told you before you could test voicing for yourself. So now we're gonna present our test and we're gonna use um, S and Z. The home test works like this. You place your fingers on your throat. I have it about halfway between chin and collar. So if you look at my throat, that's about where it is. Close counts, close will work. It doesn't have to be exact. So when you make an S sound, what do you feel? And then when you produce a Z sound, what do you feel? Well, when I produce the S sound, I feel nothing with my fingers on my throat. But when I produce the Z sound with my fingers on my throat, I can feel the vibration on my fingers, right? That vibration is the result of the vocal folds doing really close vibrations next to each other. They're almost shut, but not quite. And it's causing them to beat into buzz. each other. And that's the vibration you're getting. Yeah, buzz is a good apropos word. Because it Buzz describes is perfect. That, that sound and it contains a voice sound versus hiss. Oh. S is hiss and Z's buzz. 
buzz is entirely voiced from B to Z, and hiss, if you said hiss, would be entirely de-voiced. <laughs> whisper it. Yeah. <laughs> You're acting weird. <laughs> okay, so looking at English consonants, um, English has, some might say, a lot of consonants. The technical term is English has a mess of consonants, <laughs> and <laughs> which is a Texas way of saying a lot. So that's a joke in case you're not from Texas. I'm not being serious. Okay, so starting with the lips and moving right, it's again going from the front of the vocal tract to the back. Now, English has four bilabial sounds, right? Which we are calling here both lips. And that's what bilabial means, same thing. So we have P and B and M and W. Right? P and B are our stops. The shaded one, B, is voiced. If you're looking at our chart, everything that is shaded in is voiced, and everything that is not shaded is voiceless. Right? When we look at the lips and teeth, we only have um, fricatives for our labiodental, our one made with lips and teeth, and that is F and V. If you're watching the video, you can see my face and see that the lower lip is touching the upper teeth. And it's a fricative because it continues, right? Which reminds me of the biggest Langroner pun that I know of, which is, um, did you just say it? <laughs> no, I said, oh boy. Say nothing. Ain't no party like a fricative party. Oh yeah. Because a fricative party fricative don't stop. Party. That's right. So. That's how you can remember that it continues if you want to groan every time you remember it. <laughs> the next one is between tongue and teeth, uh, sometimes called interdental as well. And that is and mm. Now this is written with TH in English as though it's one sound. But it's not one sound. And I can give you a minimal pair right now. What? That's right. I'm going to use my own words against me. So. <laughs> We don't say it that much today, but historically English had a word, thy. It was one of the second singular pronouns. Today we still say thigh for a piece of your leg. So thigh and thy have distinct meanings, but only one thing is different. And that is the voicing of the TH. It's written as a TH. If you see here, uh, we have phonetic symbols for them that are distinct depending on whether it's voiced or voiceless. And they are phonemically distinct in English, although barely overlapping. Right. There, there is some overlap. Right. I think ether and either might be a good one, too. Well, but you can say either either, though. You can't say either either. Um, uh, um, uh, what's it called? Category change, too. So um, yeah. back versus bay, right? So noun to verb. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Teeth. A uh, nice contrast, too, is with. I always have with voiceless, I think. Well, usually, but then in without, I tend to say voice, even though those are related words. Same thing. Bath and bathe is a good one, too. I had never thought of that. Teeth and teeth, something I'm dealing with. Like. Those are both the, the same kind of category change. That's really clever. So you can prove in English for sure that there are these two phonemic sounds, even though we write it as one sound, right? So this may help you. If you are an English learner listening to this and you've gotten this far, this may help you understand some some problem. If you're going to learn voicing from English writing, you're going to have to memorize each one. Okay, moving back, we have the tongue at the back of the teeth. 
And there we have pretty much everything. That's right. That's our alveolar ridge section. And basically like every kind of consonants represented there. This is a very, uh, this is a hop in place. <laughs> and it tends to be in most languages. And you can imagine why. That's where the tip of the tongue wants to go. Um, uh, I think Hawaiian is unique, not unique, uh, uncommon. Not many languages do it in that they don't have an alveolar stop, but they'd have a labial and velar stop. So Hawaiian has a P and a K, but no T, right? That's kind of interesting. I think the only alveolar sound they have is the L. So, but in English, as is typical, our heaviest section is the alveolar ridge. That is the tongue at the back of the teeth. And we have stops, T and D. We have a nasal, N. We have two fricatives, S and Z. And then we have sonorants, L and R. And we have another one down there at the bottom. Now there's two types of R. If you're looking, the first R is in, looks like it's upside down. And this R is the one you hear a lot in words like sure and rural juror. But the other R is maybe not phonemic in English, though it's it not. is phonemic in other languages. Right. Yeah, I have a, a few non-phonemes included in this chart. That's okay, they're important to discuss and bring it up. These are the sounds of English. Some are phonemic, some are not. The second R is what we do to T and D in between vowels or in between sonorants, maybe. In American, so, anyway. yeah. in American English, yeah. Okay, so we're talking about the R at the bottom that isn't the one in rural juror. So there's an R at the bottom of the screen. If you're not looking, it looks kind of like a normal R, except there's no thumb on the top of it. And this R is not a phoneme of English. It is a sound that occurs. Um, and we're talking about the sounds of English, so we're going to do phonemic and non-phonemic. For example, T and D in English become this sound in an intervocalic or intersonorant environment. So in English, in American English, in my English. So if your English doesn't do this, that's great. It's wonderful. I'm very happy about it. I'm just describing the way I speak. If you read our blog post, then you know all languages change, and that's why people speak differently, and that's okay, and we're happy about it. Okay, so <laughs> you don't have to sit next to me at a wedding and tell me how much you hate the way kids speak. I love it. So when we talk about this R, we're talking about something that Americans do, which is T and D become this kind of R, the kind of R that's found maybe in languages like Spanish, and this R is the sound like... If I tell you someone who writes books or someone who rides bicycles, both would be a writer, right? I have seen some work claiming that the vowel before that is different, right. but I've also seen work saying it's not. So in some speakers, the merger is complete and in some it is not, right? But that is a sound in English. And if you are learning English, probably a word like R-I-D-E-R, is a real challenge because that's three different R's in a row. Well, I mean, it's two different R's, but it's a variation between the three. So you go writer, what a mouthful, right? Turtle, what is this, right? <laughs> Juror, these ones are the worst ones, even for Native American Eng or Native English speakers speaking American English, could be of any identity, that you get the words with the multiple R's again, like, oh, I'm someone who wires money. I'm a money wirer. Mm -hmm. What about 
edited it. That's a fun one. <laughs> I edited it. Edited you edited it at all. <laughs> Maybe on the next podcast, we'll talk about these kind of like repetitive thing sounds that create up the whole sentence. We've got a couple examples built up the buffalo, 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 buffaloes, and such. That's okay, not a moving sound on. Thing. What's that? Not a sound thing there. So. No, it's not a sound thing, but I think it'll be interesting. We should talk about it uh, in the future for sure. Our next series of sounds are the palatal sounds in English, and we start off with the affricates, ch and j, as in acha, aja. Right. Um, an example of J would be Roger. An example of Ch would be Richard. Hitchhike. Hitchhike. <laughs> I don't know. There's the first words that came to my mind. Maybe it says something about me. I don't know what the problem is. Okay. So the <laughs> the next sounds we have are also palatal sounds, but they are fricatives, like sh and j. And you might not think J is a sound of English, but we have it in leisure. You can't say leisure. So you can say it. <laughs> you can say it. You just it did. <laughs> I say we start saying it that way now. <laughs> um, interesting bit of variation between garage and garage, right? So my mind is like this: je is competing for it's, it's trying to usurp words from other phonemes, and it's very popular with loan words like people say Beijing, even though they shouldn't, and Kim Kim Jong Il they used to say. Yeah, who do you say that? Hmm. So I, to my mind, it's because this je has so few words belonging to it, it just needs more. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. So that's one source. And it could be which vowels follow it and things like that. I think with the garage thing, I have an alternate theory, which is that it started off as garage, and then people started saying garage. I call this orangutan um, harmony, and I don't have a good <laughs> idea about it yet, <laughs> but there's some sort of thing with velars in English. It's not supposed to be orangutan. It's orangutan, yes. meaning people and forest in Oh, like yin-yang. People have assimilated those nasals. Yin-yang, orangutan, books. garage. I was like, garage is worse because it unvelarizes. <laughs> we want them to be the garaga. same age. Yeah, I'm going to start saying garage. Oh, I parched it in the garage. I can't even say it that way on accident. There's some sort of harmony thing going on with velars where it doesn't like certain sounds following it. I don't know. I've only got a couple examples. Maybe it's not even, maybe it's, if you, listener, disagree with me, you should send me an angry email and tell me in, why. Well, in, in Garage, there's, there's a velar at the very beginning. That's of what I was talking about. Unless, that one? The same with Orangutan. What, what's wrong? What, I don't see any connection between that and the G so, in Garage. There's some sort of thing about velars at the beginning, okay. and I don't know all the thing about it. I'll make a list of examples, and then I'll write them down, and we'll discuss it, and you can decide if I'm right or wrong. How about that? What's, what's going on with Garage? Garage? No, that's the title of your next one. <laughs> what's going on with Garage? Yeah, I, I, pref I prefer Orangutan Harmony myself, but... Moving How does on. Garage show this type of harmony is what I don't understand, but we could move on. Yeah, let's save that for another. We'll, we'll save it. I, I think I can make my case, but it's going to be a big digression. So we'll save it for a future blog or podcast or something. So our final palatal sound here, we have written as a J called a yod, I believe. But this is the Y sound. So in other phonetic alphabets, this might be represented with a Y, right? So if you were going to do Austronesian languages, the J is commonly used for the palatal affricate. So they use the Y to represent the palatal uh, glide, the Y. 
It's the J sound in this word here, hallelujah. <laughs> Tyler calls it the hallelujah vowel because it's spelled hallelujah. I wouldn't call it a vowel though. The, how, how, the hallelujah consonant, the hallelujah glide or whatever. And we do use J as a Y for hallelujah in American English. Okay, so we're almost done with our consonants going from front to the back of the mouth. And now we're at the back of the tongue, the velar sounds. And we have K and G and something called angma. And this is in words like king and sing, right? We're gonna talk about angma and glottal stop or and H at the same time, actually. So our final one is glottal stop or vocal folds there is the glottal section. And the first one is glottal stop, which we've discussed as wa'a in Hawaiian and uh, uh-oh in English. Then we have the fricative H, it's made at the glottis. Um, little tiny bit of constriction, more constriction than breathing. And it's voiceless because you have to choose when you're an H, right? I know that there's other versions of H's in other languages, but the reason this H is the most common is because it's hard to voice an H, right? So we've already given ourselves the get out of jail card that this is not a phonemic chart. And it would be tricky to use our method of minimal pairs and minimal sets to show that H and Engma are separate phonemes, right? Everywhere H occurs, Engma cannot occur. And everywhere Engma occurs, H cannot occur. So if we were looking at this in similar looking sounds, we'd assume they were one sound in the mind, right? So for example, you can have a word in English like ha or help or home. Let's, let's or look at hang or something. Hang has both, right? So what my point is, you can only have H at the beginning of a stressed syllable in English. So you, you have words like vehicle. And if you want to say that H, you got to say vehicle. Right? You got to put some more stress on the next syllable. Now, with the engma, you're not supposed to say this is the beginning of words in English. So you can't say like na or no in English. That might not even sound like an engma to listeners. If you're a native speaker of English, you might not even be hearing what I'm doing here. It's the ng sound at the beginning of words. And English speakers often can't hear this in languages they're learning. But it's actually not that rare. It happens in a lot of languages, right? For example, Roviana, they do it all the time. Muzumuzu is a word for uh, a type of carving, right? And if you can't hear that, that's ngu. Putting it between vowels, that's anga, anga. It's anga is a different thing, anga, right? So even using our own method of minimal sets, we can't actually show a contrastive distribution between angma and h. That is, they occur in different environments all the time, so there's no way to show they aren't actually the same sound occurring in two different environments. Nonetheless, other than theoretical reasons, it's much, much easier to learn English if you treat them as two separate sounds, even though they never occur in the same environment. If you're a native speaker of English, you may have never noticed also that H never occurs at the end of a syllable. And so when you go to learn a language like Portuguese, which has words for sleep, spelled D-O-R-M-I-R, both of those R's occur as H's in Brazilian Portuguese, at least uh, Rio de Janeiro dialect. Mm -hmm. So it'd be dormi. You might not even hear it if you're a native speaker of English. There's dialects of Spanish too that will replace a coda S with an H sound. Wow, I didn't know that. So um, 
that's kind of some food for thought. Maybe a uh, cliffhanger. Tried to use the angma in there and the H right next to each other. Nice. But like <laughs> maybe maybe something to think about when you are studying English or a language you are learning. Whatever way you decide, I'm sure identifying the 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 sounds will help you learn the language. Okay, we're going to move on a little bit to try to apply some of our vowel prowess now to French. And Tyler is going to tell us a little bit about that in our regular um, mm -hmm. uh, segment called Comparatively Speaking. So here in, this, the, in these two charts that are on the slide, we see all of the vowels that are distinctive separate words in the Paris dialect of French, which is taught as a standard. So I'll just read them across and we'll discuss them one by one. E, U, U, that's the top row. E, U, U, O is the second. E, U, O is the third. A completes the first chart. We have three nasal vowels. A, A, O. So the extremities, same as for any language, the extreme points of the vowel space are E, A, and U. Everything else lies in between. So similar to how we do in English, there's two layers of the cake in between those. But the diff a difference is that English distinguishes short vowels from long ones. French does not. And we have vowels at the front. That's the left cells in this chart as a standard, and then other ones are back vowels. And what makes French vowels hard for English speakers to learn is we have two sets of front vowels. We have one set in black ink here, reading down, e, e, e. Those, as you can see, the lips are not round when I produce them, e, e, e. But these purple ones read also downwards, e, e, e. The lips are round. So, Breaking the vowels down like this, the way linguists like to do, I find this useful to teach learners of French because they can train themselves step by step to get these target sounds, the purple ones that are so hard. If you start out with your mouth in position for E and then just round your lips to E, then you can find this vowel. Right? Learning and knowing a language involves muscle memory and being able to do these configurations really quickly without thinking about them. As learners, we have to take our time and do them step by step. And we can do the same type of procedure for these other ones too. Starting from A, where the tongue is a little bit lower than E, we can round our lips e to get the target. E Good. Now let's do the third one. The E is even lower, though not quite at the bottom. E, and we'll round E. Uh, we'll see some real words on the next slide. Sound like linguistic students in the library right now. <laughs> <laughs> Librarying it up. Another feature that is distinct, let's not skip forward just yet. Yeah, another feature of vowels that is important in French, central actually, that we don't quite have in English at the same degree is nasalization. If I say ah, it's close to this unmodified epsilon letter here, eh, but my velum inside my mouth is lowered and there's air flowing through the nose. And that's a central fact about these three sounds, an, on, on, 
They are said that way. They derive from sequences of a vowel with a nasal consonant, but now in modern French, it's both features telescoped into a single vowel sound. Okay, let's move on now to the next slide. It's really the same word. stuff, but with real words shown. So the words are just in the standard spelling. We're gonna see lots of silent letters as we go through here. Let me just number one, two, and three. And then these down here will be four. Okay, so pronounce these words after me, guys. The word for bed up here, leaf. Leaf. Good. The frame that I'm using is I'm trying to just put the, the sound L in front of the vowel to produce a word. And we could fill up most of the chart, but not all of it, as we'll see. My second example is the participle, red, like from to read. The sound is lu. Lu. This involves that one where we write a letter Y in IPA. It's front, high, and the lips are rounded, as in Staying just in column one here, the plural article, L-E-S, as in Les Miserables. Les. The, that resulting A is really reflecting both the E there and the S. Those two combine into this A sound. And for the rounded partner here, uh, we have in the word lieu, which means place. Lieu. Yeah. You might have which seen we have in, in English. In lieu of, good. We don't yeah. have this uh sound anymore in English, so we replace it with something close, yeah. which is a common theme when we're borrowing words between languages. Since languages rarely will, it's rare that any two languages will have, languages will have the same sets of sounds. Substitutions are necessary. So lieu, here I have to add a y because le is, le is not a word in French. Yeah. Continuing downward again, L-A-I-T. Peter, you want to guess the meaning for this one? Milk. Good, that's it. Leche hey. Spanish. Hey. Is it leche in Brazilian? Leche. And leche. the sound for this one is le. le. So the le. eh, written epsilon here, is lower than the a in the line above. Le is the word milk. And the uh is heard in the word for egg. That's this one, leuf. This oh. one, here I have to add an F at the, at the end of the word to get a, uh, an actual existing word. This one here, uh, and oh, they cannot be the last sound in a word in French. Hmm. In other languages, I'm sure they could, but it happens that they can't in French. And that off is egg? Is egg, yeah. Uh. Is that a devoicing? Uh, final devoicing, of course, it's obvious. Yeah. Yes. Ovum is the Latin from which it derives. Okay, let's do column two. We have the masculine singular article and it's pronounced le. Le. That's the rule. An unmarked letter E in French is gonna be, the basic value is schwa, but le. Mm. And the lowest, the lowest vowel we have, a, can be heard in the word la, which means there. La? Voila, means look there. Ah, oh, you're blowing my mind. Good. On to column three, the word for wolf, lou. Lou. The rule of thumb is a single consonant at the end of a French word will be silent. There's exceptions. Below that, o is the sound heard in lou. And Lisa, do you have the meaning for this one? Water? That's it, the water. I'm adding that sound L 
the definite article just to keep the frame constant. Get rid of the G. And here I have to add an M sound to get a word. Lum means the man. Lum. Let's contrast these. Lo, the water. Lo. With the higher jaw position, o, and then more open, lum. Lum. These vowels are also rounded, but that's natural because they're at the back, as Peter said. That just leaves these three at the bottom, the nasal vowels. La. La. The contraction, the la. one is the meaning. La. Next example with the next vowel, long means the year. Long. Long. And we can say long. Long with the rounded nasal vowel. Long means long. It happens to be spelled the same. <laughs> is that a, oh, is that, that's, was that loaned into English? Nope. These are cognates. Both, in, it's an inherited word in both languages. From they have to be spelled alike. They don't sound alike, though. Because so they use longi in Portuguese. Longus in Latin. Yeah, I didn't know. And then loop is also final devoicing. Loop in the word for wolf. Yeah. Devoiced so much that the P is gone. There is no <laughs> it, P heard. It devoiced completely. it devoiced to breathing. <laughs> <laughs> this is really useful, yeah, when you are first learning French sounds, right? And in fact, um, when Tyler teaches lessons, French lessons. He actually creates a French IPA chart and has students place yeah. um, place with cards with right into the correct plot here to kind of conceptualize it. So just as we have different varieties of English with different sets of vowels, that's true for French too, depending where you are in the French speaking world, you might have actually different members of this chart. For instance, Quebec, they have vowels I and U as well, short ones. But this is the standard Paris variety. Is really interesting. And for Romance languages, I think French is at the top for a number of distinct vowels. That's probably true. So what's next? next. Okay. Next is F, the ineffable. And today, um, so last time yeah. we asked you to try to make the biggest alphabet you could with silent letter words, like subtle, which that would be an example of B, or E, I guess, but B in this case. So today we've talked a lot about minimal sets and minimal pairs. We want to know if you can make a giant minimal set of English vowels, particularly we're interested in the vowels. So the rules of the game are like this. We want a CVC syllable, and that can be it's not about spelling. Please remember that. Maybe we should briefly explain what CVC means. That's right. Consonant, vowel, consonant. C means consonant. V means vowel. And so CVC is consonant, vowel, consonant. That's the shape of the syllable we're looking for. We'd prefer if you only use one syllable words, but you're not going to make a very big minimal set with two syllable words. So if you want a big one, you're probably going to have to go for one syllable CVC words. Consonant, vowel, consonant. Remember, we're talking about sounds not spelling. So oh, one of our examples is we have leak and lick. Even though they're spelled L-E-A-K and L-I-C-K, if we were going to spell them with sounds, they would be L-vowel-K, both of them, but they'd have two slightly different vowels. If you don't know what IPA symbol represents the vowel, that's okay. You can write the word in orthography as long as you understand 
that we're talking about sounds, right? And orthography means spelling. Right, how it's written. A lot of dictionaries uh, these days also have the IPA, so that's a good check too. Yes, that's right. A lot of dictionaries will have a pronunciation, but if you find out you don't pronounce it that way, that's okay. However you say it, especially if you're a native speaker of your language, you aren't speaking your language wrong. That's my opinion. Agreed. So what's the biggest set you can make? I mean, we couldn't do all the vowels with L and K. And if you do L and K, you're not going to be able to do all the vowels either. But there's a lot of good combos. I did not pick the best one for an example because I was hoping someone would suggest an awesome minimal set. So and you have... We will call you the lingo. <laughs> yes, if you... If you get all the vowels in your minimal set, you'll become the Langoat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, at Lango, Langoat. So how can people submit their ideas to us? You can uh, email Lango, you can uh, DM well, that, that's a bit vague. Instagram. It's gonna be, which one, which one would it be, Lisa? Learn at Lango? Lango Institute, anywhere you want. Yeah, you can get us get to us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're recently on TikTok, um, thanks to one of our instructors, Marison. Um, and yes, you can also email us at learn at langoinstitute.com. You right. can send up a smoke signal. If you're talking about minimal sets, I'm gonna be paying attention. Or so. smoke, that's the <laughs> Two tin cans, string. Get a hold of us at Lango. We want to know your minimal set. <laughs> for the next Lango. And we're still yes. accepting submissions for the silent alphabet. Yes. That go a little longer. Yeah. The silent, but not deadly. <laughs> to the first podcast. We're still looking for other submissions too. Yeah, 20 silent letter. Had a couple good ones, but we're looking for a bigger alphabet. So keep thinking. Okay, finally we're going to discuss wordplay, which we're going to discuss every time. And because you've been such a good listener and hung on till now, this is your treat. It's wordplay. This is strategically at the end of the Lango pod to reward you for <laughs> listening and watching to you the whole thing. Um, and this week we have a gem of a pun uh, from our forthcoming book, um, Korean Peninsula. And that's not a spelling error there. Um, we're drawing attention to play on words there. Um, in Korean, peninsula is pando, right? Pando. And pan sounds like um, pun, but also means half in Korean. And then do means islands. Hmm. So Korean pando or peninsula is the name of the book. And this is one of my favorite puns from the collection. It's a Konglish pun, so it uses both um, Korean and English. And uh, this one is one of the gems that Tyler came up with. Um, so I'm going to ask y'all, have you ever taken a martial arts class? We say no. No? Well, you should taekwondo. <laughs> okay, so we're playing on the words taekwondo. And then the uh, martial arts form developed in Korea, Taekwondo, for that one. And there's many more gems um, in this book like this one. And they also function as nice mnemonics, right, for learning vocabulary in Korean. All right, and then our next joke um, is a gem on two levels. And not only is it a Konglish joke, but it's also a variation joke. 
Um, and what I mean by that is it uh, brings in um, a, a dialect, a pangon of Korean. Um, and this is from Edmundo Luna. Um, so hat tip him. And um, the joke plays on um, a, a, a Korean variety spoken in Busan and the verb endings, um, a little bit different than the variety spoken in Seoul. All right, so what is a Busan person's favorite coffee? Hmm. <laughs> I give up. heard this one and I don't remember. <laughs> Good, perfect. You guys are great people to tell uh, my <laughs> All right, the answer is uh, Amurakano. Okay, and I'm going to, I think it's even funnier as Tyler, you pointed out <laughs> with some of my, when I have to explain it. <laughs> so um, this is funny because it sounds like Americano, um, but the verb ending for interrogative sentences in Seoul Korean, so questions is ni. So borago uh, ni means what did you say? And in the Busan variety, it is no. Okay, so Murakano would be what you say in Busan. Um, and that brings it all together for this joke, um, Americano. <laughs> Which so sounds like the type of coffee, yeah. Okay. All right, um, and more gems like this uh, next podcast. Oh, and by the way, the little, uh, it looks like a man with a hat here. Um, that's a hunger letter for huh, um, and aptly shown for laughter here. Koreans laugh online. The Taekwondo right. pun is has to be my favorite at this point. It's so good. <laughs> if you haven't, you should take one though. <laughs> never, you'll never forget that. I think. No. <laughs> All right, couple announcements um, to wrap up. Uh, excitingly, LangoPod is coming to both YouTube and iTunes. Um, so you'll be able to see our mugs up here on the, on the screen, as well as our screen um, annotations once we have the video up. Um, it will also be on iTunes in the podcast section shortly. So watch for that. Um, and then something we're doing uh, with, the, with the podcast is taking one juicy linguistic-y topic and then elaborating on it on the blog. And the first one is up as of yesterday. Peter, you want to talk about that? Yeah, so the first blog that we wrote for the podcast is called Natural Sound Change. And um, we kind of discussed that all languages change and sound change is natural. And so the blog establishes that and then um, explains a little bit about how linguists know or what they mean when they say a language is related and gives an example of a natural sound change. Um, and if you want to know what that means, you got to read the blog. There's the website too. Very, very nice. And we'll be doing that uh, also with this uh, episode. We'll pick one juicy topic and then we'll talk a little bit more about it on the blog. All right, also upcoming is our fall one session, uh, August 10th through October 11th. Right now we're in our early bird promo period where you can register early and save 10% off on all language programs. Um, and in these uh, Corona Foreign times, I should say. Um, we're offering both on-site, online, and classes. Mm -hmm. We also have monthly conversation hours online, and those are completely free, so we encourage you to join those. Um, they're on different target languages. Mm -hmm. And then we have this really fun one we're doing right now called Finding Romance Languages. 
Um, that's a multilingual conversation hour um, with any romance language. All right, and then also excitingly, we will be offering uh, linguistics for language learning workshops. And the first one is very relevant to today's episode. It's all about uh, using the IPA for language learning, right? Um, so learning IPA symbols that um, will be used for your target language and then um, you can further differentiate, right? Spelling from sound and learn your language much more effectively. That's gonna be in the fall one session? Yep, coming soon in the fall one session. In fact, uh, either Tyler, Peter, or myself, or maybe all three of us will be yeah. that. All right, and then questions and comments, send to Peter at Lingo Institute, or send him a smoke signal. <laughs> <laughs> or get at us on social media uh, at Lingo on any platform. All right, so thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, please, yeah, uh, contact us uh, with any questions, comments, even rants. Um, we're open to all of it. Um, and we, we'll see you next time. We'll talk to you next time on LingoPod episode number three. Bye. See you next time. Hey, guys. Hey, Casio. Ciao. Ciao.